0: This is a special episode of Coffee Shop Conversations at Artichoke Music and one in a series of radio interviews that I did 30 years ago. Are you still listening and reading? I'm grateful. I was doing a talk show for the American Radio Network when radio networks meant something. And it was before the internet, too, in the days of newspapers and payphones. I decided that I would interview people who I had always wanted to talk to. One of them was pianist-composer Cecil Taylor. He was world-famous, but little known because of how his music sounded. Like this. It's from Live in Tokyo, recorded in 1973. Taylor was known as being as ferocious as his music. At least that's what I had heard. I was afraid he was going to eat me for lunch. So I used the weight of a commercial radio network as leverage. And I asked Gary Giddens, probably the top jazz journalist in the world, in English anyway, and a friend of Taylor's, if he would join Taylor and I in a one-hour live interview. And he said yes. And then I asked Taylor. Good move, huh? He said yes, too. You're about to hear the result. Please excuse the crappy audio. It is an air check, and the gear was pretty bad. Suggest you use headphones, but you won't be sorry. I've left in the commercials and breaks to mark the place in time when this occurred. It was March third, 1990, in Baltimore, Maryland, in the studio of the American Radio Network. And yes, the following was my theme music.
1: The work. The work.
2: What is music supposed to do? Is it uh, to help you relax? Is it to make you dance? is Is it a tool of seduction? Is it a transforming force? Something that either through lyrics or through the magic of the notes or rhythm chords or sounds changes your life or how you look at things, either a little bit or totally. And how is it that we receive music? Do we seek it out? Or do we preset the stations on our radio dial, punch something up and let somebody else feed it to us? Most of what we hear today is coming from somewhere else. Somewhere, something someone did something before that nobody ever heard before. You don't hear that very often. You don't hear that person very often. You hear the result of their work filtered, fudged, cut down and made what they like to call accessible. Now, you wouldn't see the band Living Color on MTV, and you've all seen Living Color, right? It, you, but you wouldn't have not have seen that band if it had not been for people like Cecil Taylor, Cecil Taylor. Cecil Taylor is a pianist, if you don't know. He's a composer, an improviser, and for the past 35 years or so has been leading the way. Which way? Well, you'll find out in just a minute because Cecil Taylor is on the line with us, along with Gary Giddens, the music critic for The Village Voice. This is Tom D'Antoni on the American Radio Network. It all begins after this. Play the music!
3: Attention investors in high-yield bond funds. The recent volatility in junk bonds has many investors concerned about safety. If you're investing for high income and are concerned about the credit risk of junk bonds, it's time to consider higher-quality, high-yielding government-guaranteed bonds from around the world. A globally diversified portfolio of government-guaranteed bonds can provide high monthly income with increased credit safety. The GT Global Government Income Fund offers you the opportunity to invest in the highest-yielding, most credit-worthy government bonds available anywhere in the world diversifying your assets over many government bond markets also helps to reduce volatility. To learn more about the GT Global Government Income Fund and to receive your free guide to earning income around the world, call today, toll-free, 1-800-824-1580. Learn more about the opportunity for high income with credit safety provided by global government bonds. You'll receive more complete information, including a prospectus describing charges and expenses. GT Global Investment Fund, 1-800-824-1580.
1: Jolly good sounds, though. What merry old England and all that. I was butler to his lordship. Fifty rooms in a manor, loads of silverware. Any butler with his sword is an expert in the care of silver. It's one of his main duties, don't you know? Then his lordship discovered Quicksilver, the famous silver cleaning system. I was out of a job, not so much as a fairly well, Caught the first Concord to America. No fool here, I hired on with Quicksilver, pronto as you say, and now I earn more in three days than his lordship paid full time. Quicksilver, those clever chaps, are extending their national network of dealers and demonstrators for this amazing product. That's where you come into the picture. Listen carefully to what this next
3: gentleman has to say. If you're interested in becoming a Quicksilver demonstrator and earning as much as $20,000 in your spare time, call 1-800-537-6883. You'll be trained to show the product at antique shows, fairs, and in stores. Join Quicksilver. Earn as much as $20,000 part-time. Call 1-800-537-6883 today. The great
2: blues man Hound Dog Taylor, that's Hound Dog Taylor, introducing a song one time, a song he had written, a song that the Rolling Stones had stolen a very important part of and used over and over in a number of their hits. Hound Dog Taylor said to the audience, acknowledging the fact that his music had been taken from him and incorporated into somebody else's multi-million dollar operation, Hound Dog Taylor said to his audience, he said, and I quote, people don't know who I is, but I'm with you. People don't know who I is, but I'm with (laughs) you. Well... A lot more people know who Cecil Taylor is but then who know who Hound Dog Taylor is, but the analogy is, uh, is around in that area. Cecil Taylor got there first, and he's still getting there first. Listen to a portion of his composition, "J" from his new A&M recording, Inflorescence, and then we'll talk with him. Cecil Taylor along with Greg Bendian on percussion and William Parker on bass.
1: In the center of calendar stone, death mask, a sacrifice, 26 years alive, loving, given with generosity. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
2: Taylor, That's the compositionist Jay from Inflorescence. And um, hello, Cecil Taylor. Hello there.
1: How are you doing?
2: I'm fine. And uh, what's that? let's say hi to Gary Giddens. Hi, Gary. Hi, how are you? Good. Mr.
1: Giddens, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Cecil? Well, I'm up here in Boston. Um, I've been conducting a seminar with um, young musicians at my old alma mater, New England Conservatory. We gave a concert Thursday, and we're giving another one tomorrow night. This has been an incredible year for you. Well, you know, Gary, if you persevere, (laughs) and you sort of um, appreciate the fact that given all the mistakes one has made, and you're allowed to continue on, then it can only get better, and indeed it has been getting better and better. Yeah. Yeah, well, you deserve it, and as I've said a number of times, uh, I think you inspire us not only with the music, but with your perseverance. You've not you've never compromised one wit, and you've proven everybody else wrong. Well, since we're going to uh, be generous, I must say to you, Mr. Giddens, that following your career, you have gotten sharper <laughs> in terms of your insight into music, and it seems to me uh, It's a good growing period for all of us. And specifically, I want to thank you for the really insightful notes that you did on the Jimmy Lyons, Andrew Searle album, as well as certain comments that, thus far, are not American. uh, Reviewer of music, has been able to see certain very challenging aspects of the music that we've been working on and developing for the last 10 years. I want to thank you for that, but mostly one should, I suppose, respond to the general feeling of a group of people who are aware that something is going on, and I found them in all the countries that I've been working in.
2: Well, there's a real specific feeling in that piece that we heard. That was um, that was for Jimmy Lyons, was it not? Yes. And that, uh, it's, uh, it's it's disturbing, um, that piece, because it's so obviously, you know, um, your feelings.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, they are well, there. we then you know. should recommend therapy for someone, because I spoke uh, feelings, are the truth, in the expression of the feeling, the extension of, of the love, um, does make people uncomfortable.
2: Well, I wasn't uncomfortable. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it moved me is what it did. In, oh. that, in that kind of uncomfortableness, you know what I mean?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to be put in touch with something that you were not feeling and have it be very strong. And that's what that piece did. It did to me. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this about this m record that you have coming out.
1: <laughs> well, I can't tell you very much about it. It was done. Um, I can give you an example of of the feeling that existed in the studio with John Snyder. Mm-hmm. At one point, the percussionist, at the very beginning of the session, the percussionist, And John got into a discussion over the specifics of a sound problem. Mm -hmm. And it went back and forth for not a long time, for about maybe five minutes. And then I heard Mr. Snyder say, Well, if that's the sound you want, Mr. Bennion, that's the sound you will have.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a role in that discussion?
1: Not at all. I was merely an observer <laughs> but I think the, the important thing is um, that set the tone for all that was to come after it mm-hmm. uh, and I do not know or had not experienced the, the kind of health in a recording studio to equal that session.
2: How has your role as a leader of a group changed over the years?
1: (laughs) Well, um, one thinks of it as a community of inventive players who you cannot ask them to join. And so you must always respect the efforts of the community. Mm -hmm. I think one has become more observant of the many different personalities that make up first the human being and then the, from Ellington of course, the specific literature of the instrument that a community member employs mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i'd like to
2: uh, if you don't mind i have uh, laid down a, a piece that you recorded in 1958 um uh, a piece called song and um
1: uh, it was uh, Oh actually that that was recorded in uh, the oh now are you talking about let's see you are talking about the Steve Lacy Yeah Steve Lacey and um, Dickler right, and is Charles. Charles right. That was really re- written in fifty six, recorded mm-hmm. in the latter part of fifty six for for Tom Wilson's company.
2: Uh. Oh yeah, yeah. I I had uh, I hear it is in the back. It says it says recorded December 10, 1955 in Boston. Yep. Oh. <laughs> well, let's hear some of that. All right. Okay. Whoops. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. Steve, who was on the other side of the glass, who was usually right on it, the other one, Steve, who's usually really right on it, was sitting back there and he was listening too much. <laughs> ears and not paying attention. Oh well. Got it up. Let's hear it now. From 1955,
1: song. No, uh, that was the name of that piece is called Louise. It was recorded uh, probably in 1958. Song is, that right? is an, uh, from the very first recording session that I did, and that was the one with uh, Steve Lacey. The people on that is probably Ted Curzon and Bill Brown. Brown. And Chris mm-hmm.
2: White, and Randy Collins. Right. Randy Collins. Oh well, I'm is that state. the
1: transition session? No, that's not the transition. Uh, the song is the transition section. Right. So this is probably U you right. A. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, they had one of the, the with the Love for Sale album. That had one of the great album covers of all time.
4: How <laughs> <What> was that?
1: <laughs> well, we should have had um, Ava Gardner or Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. Right. On
4: Who'd you
2: have instead?
1: Well, rather <laughs> nondescript, but it. It was certainly, it had the red light, I think, and It had, yeah. It was a street scene with a, a man and a woman standing under a light, and it said, Love for Sale, and I'm, I'm sure some people must have boarded thinking they were going to hear... The piece was written for, for uh, uh, a then-woman friend of mine, who was really a friend. Her name was Louise. And also the piano solo... Um, It was in 1958.
2: Excuse me one second, I hate to interrupt you, but we have to play this awful little piece of music uh, to let some stations come on the line that uh, went somewhere else. Here it is. I have to do that. They don't pay me unless I do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so you were saying about uh,
1: uh, Little Lee's? Yeah. Uh, well, i just about said it all. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> I remember those those days, those um, situations, circumstances that we were in. Uh, was being fed very well by a head cook who happened to be my father.
2: <laughs> what was his best dish?
1: Well, my favorite dish—it might, he might not have been his best dish. Um, <laughs> he made—he had a way of making uh, fruit salads that were extraordinary. Hot biscuits, sweet potato pie. Um, every second Sunday, he would prepare breakfast, and I can still smell it. Mm. <laughs> haven't eaten as well since, actually, although the cuisine up here in Boston is quite, just something. Yesterday, for instance, we were taking to lunch with uh, Rand Blake and Ricky Ford, a lovely woman composer by the name of Claire, and uh, my host, Basashi. We ate at a Chinese restaurant in Brighton, and we were the only ones there for four hours, and it was an extraordinary dishes. <laughs>
2: Gary, uh, do you remember the first time
1: you heard Cecil Taylor's music? I do. I remember uh, the first several times actually. Uh, the the, for, the very first time I ever heard of him, strangely enough, um, I saw him on television. Oh, my. It was uh, the old Channel 13 in New York before it became PBS. I think Matt Hentrop was the host. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh. And I, and I, I guess what the thing know? that... It startled me, because I was quite young then, was the fact that you were playing on the inside of the strings in the piano. And the only person I'd ever seen do that before, I guess, was Harpo Marx or Jimmy Durante or something. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I, and then I, I I, started listening to jazz around that time, and I, I guess the first record I bought of yours was Mo Mantra. Oh, yeah. But then Unit Structures came out right after that, and Unit Structures is what really did it for me. Um, I listened to that record, I can remember... The first several times I listened to it, and uh, I think the first few times I, I kind of concentrated too much. I was working so hard, and I, I just didn't get it. And then one night, I was uh, with some friends, and there was a stack of things, and all of a sudden, I, w- I wasn't really focusing on it, and I started hearing this music in the background. And I said, what the hell is that? And I was listening for two or three minutes, and all of a sudden, it hit me that it was unit structures. And the thing about music is, once you hear it, you've heard it. You know, <laughs> the door kind of opens, the veil drops from your eyes, and I think that was when I really first became very emotionally involved with your music. Hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, before we go any further, let's hear a little bit of uh, steps from unit from that that record, unit structure, Steve. All right. <laughs> and the uh, piece with
1: steps. And that's what did it for you, huh, eh, Gary? Yeah, I think that's one of the, that was one of the really outstanding records of that period in the, in the mid-'60s. It, 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 I think it did it for a lot of people. There was so much going on, and it made sense compositionally, and it had such a great feeling to it. And of course, I, I think one of the two of the ways that a lot of us who were initially perplexed by Cecil's music came into it, one I think was the piano, which had so much, so, so much uh, charisma to it, and the, the rhythmic the feeling, the percussive feeling, uh, it just didn't sound like anybody else. But the other thing was the, the sound that Jimmy Lyons got on the alto. It's, it's, that sound, you know, almost irrespective of the notes he was playing, carried so much of the tradition that you you, you kind of felt you knew where you were even if you didn't quite. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, is that what you were... Uh, is that the effect that you were going for, Cecil?
1: <laughs> well, you write a piece of music and you're not certain as to exactly what you've done. It was very interesting Hmm. listening to that, now in retrospect. Because I find, for me, some of the the music that I enjoy the most...
2: Excuse me, this is the American Radio Network.
1: I'm sorry, go ahead. ...is um, the surprise, after I've been practicing the piece for many times, Comes when I realize the beauty that is there, the excitement that is there. Do you? Uh,
2: does it call up um, the emotions that you felt at the time that went into that piece? The, the structures uh, that you were going for, when, or or the session? Uh, you know, what, you know, when when you hear it again
1: like that. Well, you first have to dig that for every uh, piece of music that is written and is finally played, there are uh, weeks of rehearsals of... So the music then begins to take on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. The kind of composition, I don't like to use that word very much, because it is, what we're dealing with, is the ability to organize sounds and have those sounds communicate a structural, historical magical essence to those who are participating mm-hmm. in the community. Mm-hmm. I don't like the separation between what one feels and what one constructs. Mm-hmm. For me, it is the passion that informs the nature of that which is to be constructed. Mm-hmm.
2: And that is, that's the essence of it, isn't it? I'm sorry? And that's the essence of
1: it. (laughs) Well, uh, there are among certain West African tribes that the essence is thought of as the core. (laughs) I think uh, the possibility of the growth becomes the essence when one understands that the more you live, the more you work at it, I uh I just I, was, I had a voracious appetite for that music and I just went from CD to CD and it it seemed to me that to uh, sustain a, an extraordinary feeling of life and optimism and generosity Well, what was amazing to me about Happened that those are the same 5D, the same 5Ds five, five Ds that I was most expectant in, in terms of wanting to hear them again. Aha! Uh-huh. Oh, that was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. And indeed, Gary, this situation up here has been. Uh, a very wonderful time. It is growing. The the There are young uh, musicians, young me. adults...
2: Excuse me, please. I have to do this again. Here's that terrible tune. Talking with pianist, composer Cecil Taylor and uh, Gary Giddens, the jazz critic from the Village Voice in Nueva York. Um, Please, yes. And let's fade the music completely out so we don't hear any more. Boy. I like to call that tune spinning around in a desk chair and getting dizzy because it's It's very minimalist.
1: Uh, (laughs) Um, I was interested, Cecil was saying about the the situation in Boston now. I remember that you had created a great controversy teaching at Antioch almost 20 years ago. Right. Uh, It's changed, I guess. Well, I... I think it was it was the beginning of, uh, of a very significant period of my career, which actually began when uh, I believe Gunther Schuller made it possible for me to go out to the University of Wisconsin. Uh-huh. Specifically, for instance, in this uh, situation I'm in now, for instance, we have about, uh, let's see, we have three guitars. Now, in the last 10 years, Jimi Hendrix has become very important to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have one guitarist up here who had his 22nd birthday this week. Uh, He is outgoing, he is um, bright, he is funny, Um, he has tremendous possibilities. What's his name? Uh, his name—I shall not tell you his name yet. <laughs> but then we have another—we have another guitarist who is much more self-contained mm-hmm. uh, and plays the instrument that way. And both of these gentlemen are are. A revelation and a, and a real privilege to work with. And what I have learned, and we have had a real exchange. Um, one's name is Steve, and the other one's name is Stefan. Uh, they are in rehearsal at the at the moment. We have we had um, five female voices, hmm. one male voice, a um, woman well, who played cello. Uh, we have a Japanese percussionist. We have um, two flutes, two flautists. We have three tenors. One very brilliant young trumpeter from Long Island, and on and on and on and on. We've been rehearsing for the last ten days, and it's growing. It's growing, and it—it's uh, my fortune to be in a position to speak and to exchange whatever uh, i have learned over the last 35 years we we gave a series of three encounters which allowed me to uh, read some of the, the verbal things that i have been working on and the the exchanges were never less than electric <laughs> <laughs> Will, there, will recorders come out of this? Uh, listen, when, when I get to New York, I'll talk to you about a number of things that I, I have been waiting to talk to you about, actually. Okay.
2: Gentlemen, we have to play a couple of commercials here. <laughs> if you can just hold on, we'll continue, and we'll get to some more music. Tom D'Antoni with Cecil Taylor and Gary
1: the benches have been removed from the subway, which seemed to be the only thing that is really freed free of the freedom to starve. But um, in terms of music, um, that whole notion um, was a misunderstanding, and perhaps a misunderstanding built on fear. The real issue was uh, what was the different order of construction? Um, speaking generally, would seem to mean that in the, in, in the Bebop, the immediate area that preceded us, there was the order of thirds. Um, vertically ending in combinations of thirds, ending in sevenths or augmented elevenths or thirteenths. Uh, and there was a certain consistency in the weight balance and the margining of time. Uh, with the advent of certain musicians, after 1957, we, came, we, we became aware that it was possibility, there was a possibility of having several rhythms, existing at the same time.
2: How did you become aware of that possibility?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, these possibilities make themselves evident as you continue to work. That's the wonderful thing about the study, the preoccupation with with, uh, the physics of magic. You begin to learn a little in increments of inches perhaps. But it all comes back in a sense to what is the biped's preoccupation. We had a discussion, for instance, here at the last encounter uh, of rhythm and the discussion ended with um, Providing examples between the quadruped and the biped, uh, the four-four as imagined in uh, Western music, as opposed to the three-four in other music, or the de-acceleration-acceleration acceleration principle of the single stroke as manifested by the izuma kabuki or uh, uh, kabuki or bunraku uh, percussion. We become aware only out of the genuflection to the superior forces that were here before us. Because after all, you know, the music the music uh, was here before uh, anyone named Cecil came on the scene, and it will certainly be here after someone called Cecil has gone from the scene. Therefore, what is necessary is one is really going to absorb as much of the light of life as possible is to be gracious for the opportunity afforded one
2: well if you, if you wouldn't mind i'd like to, look, to play a little bit of some, <laughs> of some light from some of your light from life uh-huh. uh, i have uh, queued up crossing from uh, silent tongues which is cecil taylor live at uh, montreal in 1974 and steve let's play a little bit of that we <laughs> Taylor from uh, the Reconciling Tongues, live at uh, Montreal, 1974. Uh, No matter what you do, whether whether you uh, you stand in front of uh, five people and and give a speech at work, (laughs) or uh, no matter what level of performing that you are at, uh, there—if you do it enough—there comes a time where you feel so comfortable with your performing. Or you are you are into it so much that you go somewhere. You just go somewhere during that performance. That's that's uh, it's it's not uh, anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> where uh, Cecil Taylor? Where is it that you go when you're performing live like that?
1: You attempt to. Uh, well, no, you don't have any choice in no the matter. What happens is that you you do your homework i.e., you practice, you uh, digest specific materials. And one of these I think means is the training of the senses to respond to sound. Uh, As I said before, I think um, um, the word composition would be superseded by the, the attempt to construct an organized sound so that with a, a knowledge of, uh, a growing knowledge of history, or a growing knowledge of the methodological practices that are revealed to you by the nature of the work, uh, the spirituality of out of which the, of the work comes, i.e., uh, Grandfather on on my father's side was Kiowa. Grandmother on my mother's side was Cherokee. Uh, the investigation of the land uh, leads one, hopefully, to a state of trance. Hmm. Hmm.
2: We're coming up on a break. Um, this is Tom D'Antoni on the American Radio Network. We're talking with pianist-composer Cecil Taylor and Gary Gibbons is with us also. The, jazz critic for the village voice i want to tell you that next week in the uh, 8 p.m eastern time zone period of this program drummer max roach will be with us the following saturday in uh, the 8 p.m eastern time zone portion of this program keith jarrett will be with us and um by the way those of you who were with us when we thought we got stiffed by carla blair a few weeks ago well i'm sorry she didn't but she was she did forget and was in the other room playing the piano so she'll be with us in a couple of weeks we'll take a break right now and then we'll come right back tom d'antoni on the american radio network hi we've been talking with cecil taylor and gary giddens and uh uh, uh cecil taylor uh, gary giddens tells me that uh uh, the next uh, jazz insert in the Village Voice is going to be devoted entirely to you.
1: That's a surprise. <laughs> yes, I was going to call you about that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> what can we look forward to, Gary? Well, I've got several people working on pieces, um, I, I, some that Cecil knows. Eckhart Yost is doing something, I'm not sure exactly what. Uh-huh. And uh, Richard Cook in England, and uh, I'm trying to get a few people. I'm, 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 I'm hoping I was going to ask you if you would uh, contribute uh, perhaps some poetry or something. Sure, I'd like to. That'd be great. What are you going to write about, Gary? I haven't decided yet. <laughs> 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 By the way, Gary, Yeah. when you talk to Norman Weinstein... Oh, Norman, of course, yeah. That I said hi. I have the book. I'm looking at the book right now, as a matter of fact, and I've enjoyed it. Oh, great! I will. Well, geez, what uh, is the occasion for this uh, could, this uh, thing that's going to happen in the Voice next week, Gary? Well, it's it's in the summer, and uh, you know I do I do two uh, supplements every summer, and I in see. the past I've, I've you know I've had occasionally one was dedicated to Ellington, one to Armstrong. And uh, it just struck me that you so you were so dominant in the past year that it was long overdue between the the award that you won with uh, I guess with Gerald Wilson and George Russell, right? And the Berlin record, which just completely blew my lid off. And uh, the the appearance at uh, JVC this past summer, which was far and away the highlight of that festival. Uh huh. Thank you. That was a that was a good night. That was. Yeah. And we also won uh, an award from um, the what is that? The Composers Group in New York. Oh, I was aware of that. Uh, run by John Duffy. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a it's been um, a good year. Well, where's the autobiography? <laughs> <laughs> the mission hasn't begun yet, you know, oh. and uh, the mystery is only in the making. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, the, the, geez, well, I have to, I, we'll just keep, we'll just keep on going back and rereading the, the, the backs of the album covers, because, um, I mean, there's some stuff from, some, from 15, 20 years ago I'm still trying to figure out, but I'm going to get there,
1: <laughs> <laughs> at least I'm going to try. Well, the thing is, if you if you persevere with that, you you do figure it out. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's
2: that much it's that much more rewarding. Yeah. Listen, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for being with us, Cecil Taylor. It's just, it's just been it's been delightful, and and uh, I'm, I appreciate uh, all your words, and I, and I know our listeners do too. And, and thank you again, uh, also Gary Giddens. My pleasure. We're gonna go out with uh, another cut from uh, Cecil Taylor's new A and M release. This one is this cut is called Entity. American Radio Network.
0: Think of yourself as an archaeologist, discovering a dirty sheaf of Beethoven sheet music. Not easy to decipher, but oh what gems to find. Sorry for the technical problems. Not sorry I put this up. I think it deserved to be heard. Cecil Taylor died at his Brooklyn, New York home on April 5th, 2018, at the age of 89 leaving a vast legacy of work, including much music for dance. He was also a poet, but you could hear that in his speech. Gary Giddens is still with us at age 73, and I'm still around too. Thanks for listening.